It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, February 17th, 2016, and you're listening to God and Comics, the show where real men wear black. On today's show, men and masculinity. Many people believe there is a crisis of manhood and male identity in Western affluent societies today. We'll talk all about what comic books and comic book culture teach us about manhood. It's our most musk-scented episode yet, so strap in, friends, and make sure you don't confuse laying prostrate before the Blessed Sacrament with checking your prostate, because the testosterone is about to fly. (laughs) I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michigan. (laughs) I am Rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And also on the line today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm from Christ's Episcopal Church in Cooperstown, New York. Okay, well I'm, I'm glad you guys are here. I'm looking forward to getting manly with the both of you. But before we do that, we have, as always, our recommendation, which I believe is Father, Father Matt's this time. So take it away, Father Matt. So my recommendation this week is Marvel Comics uh, reprints of the classic comic book from the early 80s, uh, Miracle Man. This was a, a series that, that was pretty groundbreaking in its day. It, it's written by Alan Moore. Before his his classic deconstruction of the superhero genre in his series Watchmen, Alan Moore did something similar with a classic British superhero called Marvel Man. The character has a, a, a rather complex history. The original character was just a slightly repackaged version of the American hero, Captain Marvel. Marvel Man's secret identity was uh, a young reporter named Mickey Moran. Uh, Like Captain Marvel, he would transform himself into a superhero by saying a secret word. In this case, it was Komoda, which is basically atomic, pronounced backwards. And, And these powers were given to him by an astrophysicist rather than a wizard in the case of Captain Marvel. And, but like Captain Marvel, he also had two sidekicks, uh, Kid Marvel Man and Young Marvel Man. And he also had a female counterpart, Marvel Woman. And so the, the book was popular for a time in England and Great Britain, but eventually it died off in competition with American imports. In the early 80s, the series was revived, and Alan Moore was hired to write it. And a number of young rising artists were also hired to do illustrations, including Gary Leach and Alan Davis, Rick Vetch, and John Tolbine. But the series was published in America by Eclipse Comics under the title Miracle Man. In Moore's run, it was an innovative groundbreaking game changer in in the world of superhero comics taking uh, the dated older character and kind of completely reinventing him for a modern audience it's pretty edgy it's pretty adult and sophisticated definitely not for younger readers 
when the series begins, Mickey Moran is an older, slightly out of shape reporter who finds himself injured in a terrorist attack. And he has no memory of his life as Miracle Man from years ago, but his memory is jogged when he sees the word atomic written on the reverse side of a glass. And, and see, he finally finds himself saying the word Komoda, and he's transformed into Miracle Man and you know, stops the terrorist, saves the day. But his, his past comes back to him, including an explosion that put him and his two sidekicks out of commission. And his quest to discover what it is that happened to him reveals the shocking truth of his true origins. So no sooner has he remembered that he was Miracle Man than he discovers that everything he thought he knew was wrong. So after years in, in kind of legal limbo, the series and the character has finally landed in the hands of Marvel Comics, and they uh, began republishing the old series a couple of years ago, although Alan Moore didn't want to have anything to do with it. He's credited uh, simply as the original writer. The comics look really fantastic, and the they're recolored and they're printed in higher quality. It does the artwork a, a lot of justice to see it kind of, you know, uh, get the modern treatment updating. The original comics that I had, I had to track down the Eclipse series, like issue by issue at like comic conventions and then back issue boxes and stuff. So, I mean, and they were printed, you know, as comics were in those days on like the old kind of newsprint. So, these really do look worlds better. You could buy them issue by issue, but they've also come out with several trades collecting them. And so once they got through reprinting the original Alan Moore run, after Moore's run, it was followed by Neil Gaiman was the, the writer. And, and um, Mark Buckingham, I think that's his name, is the artist. And, um, and this, these kind of pick up, where Alan Moore left off, but um, and and that run is kind of classic in its in its own right. Those have been available in trade paperback for a little while, even before they were republished by Marvel. But coming up, I think next month they're going to be publishing all new Miracle Man stories. Neil Gaiman is going to continue writing the story. Or I think I think he had he had some original stories that 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 weren't used yet. So they're going for the first time in you know decades. They're going to be publishing all new Miracle Man stories. So I, I'm really excited by that, and I encourage everyone to take a look at the Marvel Comics reprinting of, of the Miracle Man comic because it is not to be missed. It's a fantastic comic book series. Are, are they being brought into the Marvel Universe then? No. It, at least the series doesn't take place in the Marvel Universe. I don't know what they'll end up doing with the character of Miracle Man, um, whether or not he will find his way into mainstream Marvel comic stories or not. The world in, in Miracle Man, it, he's, it's very important that he's uh, the only hero and it's a very different world than the world of Marvel Comics. I'm not to give the story away, but it's it sort of asks the question: 
what effect would it really have on the world if someone actually had these kind of godlike powers? What would it mean for government? What would it mean for everyday life? You know, how would it change things? It, it changes things pretty dramatically. Okay. Well, thank you for that recommendation, Father Matt. And now we will move from Miracle Man into the Miracle of Man. Yeah? You see what I did there? Uh, nice segue. You like that? Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, manhood and comics, or masculinity and comics. And let's start just by asking the question, what have comics historically taught us, if anything, about what it means to be a man? Well, I think you have different, over the course of the history of comics, I think you have different messages about what manhood is. So to ask historically what they've taught, um, I think we could say that they've taught a number of things. One, I think back in the golden age of comics, you tended to get a more traditional view of males, hood, and um, what it is to be a man. I certainly think I see that reflected in, in the early characters of Superman and Batman to an extent. And Greenland, the old Green Lantern and, you know, the original Flash and so forth. I think when you move into Stan Lee's era in the 60s into the Silver Age of comics, you start to get a little bit more of a picture that it's okay for a man to have vulnerabilities. I think in the Golden Age of comics, that was not have been as acceptable. We wanted this sort of stoic, strong male in the Golden Age of comics. But in the, in the Silver Age of comics, we get this picture of Yes, man is strong, and he can be a leader, but at the same time, he's got his frailties and his struggles in life. Now, I think as you move into the Bronze Age of comics, that picture of malehood starts to shift even more so that you have these kinds of characters who are very fragile and have a lot of struggles and may not even at times be a good example of what was traditionally called manhood. So I think there's this this arc that takes place, uh, and it, it kind of shifts over the course of comic book history. There's been some development in comic books in the relation to how men are are, are viewed or what what messages they send send about masculinity. But I think overall. The message that comic books have kind of sent about, you know, the question of what it means to be a man has been pretty consistent. And it has to do with um, at, at least at least the mainstream kind of superhero comics. And, and it has to do with physical prowess and, and, and strength. This isn't necessarily even the content of the comic book, but if you read comic books at all, when we were younger or generations before, you have read that Charles Atlas advertisement uh-huh. any number of times. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and this is the, this is the audience that they were uh, aiming to. So you got to describe that for anybody who okay, hasn't so, seen it. Um, so basically, there's a there's a young uh, shrimpy guy, and there's a, a bully on on the beach. And kind of pushes him around because he's a quote ninety pound weakling, <laughs> and uh, and of course the women have nothing but contempt for him. 
because he's uh, he's weak. And then he sends away, and he gets the Charles Atlas uh, program, and you know he beefs up, and then he you know he he shows the um, the the bully you know what a real man will, will how a real man will stand up to him, and of course then the women all respect him, and and, and of course he's already famous for his bill, and then there was a picture of. Johnny Atlas, who was in decent shape, but like, I mean, not that great of shape. <laughs> I mean, kind of like, you know, he, he's like, you know, a, a big dude. He's not, it's not, certainly not to modern sort of steroid standards, but, uh, you know, he, he, but he's the bodybuilder. And, and, you know, and it's all about, you know, having muscles, and, and muscles are important. In, in, a, in a comic book character, I mean, they all wear these sort of spandex outfits that somehow you could see their veins coming through on the spandex outfits. That's how ripped these heroes are, and like they have like not just like a six pack, they have like a twelve pack of abs. <laughs> a lot of ink has been spilt on how the bodies of women are portrayed in comics, but. We could say almost the same thing about how the bodies of men are portrayed in comics, that they're sort of this ridiculously uh, idealized form of, of the male body. Now, they're not quite as sexualized, but that's only because they, they, you know, they're four men. Um, you're, you, you're supposed to imagine yourself having this body and being with the sexualized body of the uh, female characters in the story. The Charles Atlas ad is an interesting phenomenon, and I think points in part to not just to what these stories were saying about what it means to be a man, but also to who the audience for these stories was, and I think to a certain extent who the creators were. Um, both of which are shifting targets in comics today. So let me, let me try to explain a little bit of what I mean. If you think about really, really early Superman, late 30s Superman, here, of course, you have the paragon of masculinity, right? He's literally named Superman. Like, the idea is pretty straightforwardly presented here this is what the ultimate man is like but he's created by Siegel and Schuster who are a little closer to 90 pound weaklings mm-hmm. uh-huh. and you see this kind of split between Clark Kent who is Superman's secret identity who is He's not a 90-pound weakling, obviously, because he can't hide his, his size, but he very deftly portrays himself as what might be seen as less manly. He's very clumsy. He wears glasses. He, um, and so, you know, people always joke about, well, how come they can't, they look at Clark Kent and they can't see Superman? Well, it's because everything about his mannerism as Clark Kent is less than the Superman, less than the ideal man. And even the glasses themselves, though it's not much of a disguise, uh, in a way it kind of is, because it's it's a symbol of weakness, right? This guy 
can't even see properly without his giant spectacles on his face. And one of the things you'll notice in those early comics with the, um, especially that, you know, late 30s, very early 40s Superman is that Lois Lane, who is the love interest there, spends a lot of time ragging on Clark Kent for not being very manly. Like this is a theme that comes up over and over again in those comics. Like you, what you're not much of a man, Clark Kent. Um, whereas Superman is attractive because he's everything that you're not. We could do a whole uh, psychological study on what made Siegel and Schuster create a character like this, who seems to the world to be uh, a weakling and not much of a man, but really on the inside is this uber man who is just waiting yeah. to come out. So, you know, there, there's it's not just Superman either. It's and if you ever read the old Flash comics, it's hilarious because uh, Iris is always like oh, Barry's late again. He's so slow. <laughs> you know, he's not—he's not fast like the Flash. You know? Right. Uh, anyway, I mean, it's pretty—it's consistent. Like the female characters sort of have disdain for the uh, the non-superhero right. alter ego. Uh-huh. But but here's the thing, Father Kyle, you you had mentioned that they they sort of had a more traditional kind of view of masculinity in the beginning. I would say I'm not sure how traditional it was in the very beginning, but it was very machismo and it was very in your face. So you had Superman, you know, beating the living stuffing out of guys and laughing about it. <laughs> right. Like, this is awesome. I'm, you know. And right. at that point, he's not dealing with, you know, aliens and, and massive crises like he does now. This is like street-level thugs who he could, like, kill with his pinky if he wanted to. He's, you know, laughing at them and beating them to a bloody pulp as he does so. Um, right. And really just not displaying much chivalry or even much courage, right? Because it's not much of a contest at this point. I think where you see the shift happen is when World War II happens. Yes, absolutely. Because when World War II happens, now all of a sudden there is, in the in the culture of the country at large, a whole view of manhood that probably existed prior to this, but that seems to sort of reinvent itself through history anytime there is a war to be fought. And that is that a true man is heroic, and so a true man serves his country. And in fact, one of the problems that some of these comic creators had to deal with at that time was what to do about heroes that we, you know, we obviously, we can't put Superman on the front lines of the battle. He would win the battle overnight, and there would be, you know, so what do we do about that? But we also don't want him to seem like he's not a real man by not trying to go and serve his country. And so what they actually did is they had Clark Kent show up to try to uh, enlist, but when he does so, they show him the eye chart, and with his x-ray vision, he accidentally looks through it, reads the eye chart in the next room instead, and fails his eye examination, <laughs> and therefore is ineligible to serve. Uh, 
So, um, but uh, yeah, I, so I think that whole World War II paradigm shifts things, and that really, I think, continues into 50s and 60s era comics, at least on the DC side, before you get to right. the Stan Lee stuff in the 60s, where you have a lot of this sort of classic American idea of what a man is, which isn't necessarily as historical as we might think it is. A lot of it is really rooted in World War II and disillusionment post-World War II. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you on that. I think that, yeah, broadly speaking, we could say that because the Golden Age kind of encompasses that time period up until the early 60s. But I think you're right. When you look at the early comics, there is definitely much more of a machismo edge and there is that ongoing theme of being less than a man to becoming a man, which is what they're trying to appeal to the kids with. And I thought Matt's comments about Charles Atlas were very apropos, because even if you look at Captain America, he's, you know, the weakling Steve Rogers, who wants to serve his country but can't serve his country. And so he has to get the super soldier serum in order to be able to um, finally become a man and serve his country in that regard. And even he's got the edge of machismo, which kind of tempers down a little bit as you get into the war years, because he early on is fighting and laughing at, you know, beating down people and sort of has that, that built up machismo Mm -hmm. energy in him. But yeah, I think you're right. I think on, on, I think you see that going on throughout the Golden Age and then into the Silver Age. And I think you're correct in saying about DC. DC seems to hang on to that edge a little bit longer than Marvel does. Marvel makes the shift ultimately with Stan Lee. And uh, DC kind of comes along to it maybe more in the early 70s, that new definition of manhood as having some foibles and weaknesses and it's okay to have that stuff. With, with a character like Spider-Man, they kind of make fun of the macho, muscle-bound guy with Flash Thompson. You know, yeah. he's a dope, and Peter Parker is brainy, and he's smart. So on one level, they're critiquing the kind of, you know, macho, jock uh, stereotype, but at the same time, sort of playing up to it, because, yeah, uh, Peter Parker's like a, a nerdy, brainy guy, but uh, he could also lift a car over his head. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's all, um, if, if they only knew how strong he really was. They know their audience because, let's face it, the guys who typically read comic books were guys like me. I was never especially athletic. Oh, you're a paragon, <laughs> of, a paragon of manhood, Father Matt. That's right. Yeah, but... Um, but but there's this power fantasy element to it, you know, um, where we could sort of fantasize about being uh, powerful. And, you know, my recommendation this week was for, for uh, Miracle Man. And, um, of, of course, Miracle Man and Captain Marvel, it's, uh, it's, it's very upfront. I mean, like the little boy turns into a superhero. He's not a, he's not a boy. He's a muscle-bound man. Um, and uh, even in Alan Moore's run, I mean, they sort of play with this idea. Michael Moran is sort of like, he's got like this pot belly. He's like kind of, his hair is graying. You know, he's, he's, he gets winded. He's out of shape. But then he says one word and he's a god. 
You know, he's uh, he's got this perfectly sculpted physique. He's invulnerable. I mean, he shimmers. And, of course, um, after a while, it's like, well, why would I ever turn back into Michael Moran? Why not always be Miracle Man? You know, and, and so as the series goes on, he's less and less Michael Moran. He's less and less even attached to uh, humanity at all. And the power fantasy behind being a superhero is to sort of leave those weaknesses behind. Yeah, sure, um, Matt Murdock is blind, but then, uh, you know, he, he jumps across buildings at night as Daredevil. You know, Peter Parker's a, a, a nerd. He gets pushed around in school. But when he puts on the Spider-Man outfit, he, you know, he could fight the Sinister Six all, all at the same time. Yes. Well, and Spider-Man is an interesting example, too, because um, as you point out with that Flash Thompson thing, th- one of the interesting things about Spider-Man is that his heroism comes out through his restraint. And so, you know, as Peter Parker, he could, he still got all the same powers as Peter Parker that he has when he puts on the Spider-Man mask. He could just put Flash Thompson into a coma the next time Flash messes with him. I'm has he ever done that? I don't think so though. Like it seems like usually he shows I mean there's the a long history here, but in the movie, he kind of yeah. he kind of freaks out on Flash Thompson a bit. It uh, just seems like most of the time, the the what's happened is he's shown a certain restraint, which has lost him social capital, but which has been meant to show the reader or the viewer, I suppose, that this actually is a real hero, and he is courageous enough to not consider his own social capital to be the most important thing. The most important thing is that he protects his family, which means he can't show the world that he's really Spider-Man. That, that I think, in some ways, is a more more interesting thought in terms of heroism, and particularly in terms of manhood, uh, because, in a way, this is what... I think we as men are are called to do, right? There's a sacrificial element of manhood. And I think in some ways, if we want to talk about the sort of loss of identity of manhood in our culture, I mean, there are a lot of people who are talking about this now. You know, Hannah Rosen wrote that book a couple years ago, The End of Men. There, There's all these ways in which men in our culture today really don't know what it means to be a man, where to draw that from. I think one of the things that we have lost is the sense of a duty of heroism, which is not to say that women can't be heroes or can't be heroic at all, but but that men have a certain duty of heroism, which I think sometimes just gets, it really kind of gets dumped on, I think, in the culture these days. You know, how dare you? Uh-huh. I can I can handle things myself, thank you very much. How dare you think that you, man, have to make a sacrifice for for me? I mean, am I wrong? Am I just No, I think you're I think you're right. I mean, one of the things that has happened and you alluded to this a little bit earlier is that the the idea I used the word traditional view of manhood earlier 
um, the, the idea of what it is to be a man has always reinterpreted itself throughout the course of human history, right? The picture that we get painted in the scriptures of man and woman is that man and woman are a reflection of Christ and his church. And in that reflection, there is a sense in which there is a sacrificial element. So you're right in saying that for the man, there's a sacrificial element as being a type of Christ to women and to other men as well, I think we can say, to the, the neighbors around us. Yeah, I, I think kind of, uh, scripture kind of, it, it takes the cultural idea of the man as being the authority, as being the strong one. And in some respects, uh, you know, St. Paul is, is subverting that because he's saying like, well, he said, well, you want to know what it really means to be strong? What it really means to, to you know, have authority? Well, it means to lay down your life for, for, for your wife. Um, right. He's affirming sort of a good impulse there, uh, but saying, you know, uh, in light of, of Christ, this looks completely different. It's, it's sacrificial. You know, I, I could kind of see that in comic books and in this arc that, that you talked about and, and which um, uh, Father Jonathan spoke about in relation to Spider-Man, um, that, well, you know, he, he has the great power and strength, but he never uses it for, to, to, for self-aggrandizement. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least he learns his lesson. I mean, or he starts off, he, he's using his power to make money. And he's 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 in a wrestling match, and and he's becoming a wrestler and a star, and then he learns, of course, that with great power comes great responsibility, right. and that he has right. a, a, a a duty to use his power not for himself but for the sake of others. I think that's what Scripture calls men to use their kind of social capital, not not to sort of you know, insist upon their their own place as like, you know, I'm the man, I'm in charge. Right. But he says, right. you know, use that position for the sake of others. If you were really secure in, in who you were as a man, you know, you would be able to defer to your wife from time to time. You know, and, and you know, he, he talks about that submit to one another in love. That's pretty uh, subversive uh, to the kind of greco-roman idea of the um you know macho man that it's sort of more like early superman (laughs) you know he's Mm -hmm. strong and he's going to let everybody know that he's strong um and it's a very different uh picture of the masculine uh masculinity that we get from our lord um who 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 does not have those sort of traditional masculine characteristics yeah, and uh, boy, that that line from Uncle Ben with great power comes great responsibility. That may just be the most directly that there is a statement about what it means to be a man in comics. Right. And mm-hmm. I think the the one that is probably the most harmonious with what you might call a traditional view, or at least a, a Christian view, Uncle Ben may very well be the paragon of of manhood. Uh, in comics just just by just by sharing that concept because that really is what's behind it it's not about who's got the biggest muscles and who can inflict the most damage it's about 
how do we use the, if you like, power or strength or whatever it is that we have been gifted with by God, how do we use that in the sake of the service to others? There is almost a way in which, because of course, you know, everybody, male or female, we're called upon to make sacrifice, but there is a kind of sacrifice in our bodies. And I think for women, particularly through childbearing, there is a kind of sacrifice in the body that takes place, a sacrifice in the flesh, if you will, that takes place. For men, obviously we don't bear children, so we don't have that same sacrifice in the body. And yet, I think there is, from a Christian perspective, a sort of calling for a sacrifice in the flesh. Not that we are sacrificing ourselves to the same end that Christ sacrifices himself, but that as men, we are called to be little Christs, if you will, and to sacrifice our well-being for the sake of those who we are given to care for, which could be, you know, our wives and our children, it could be elderly parents, it could be the community that we are placed in, if, you know, we're monks or nuns or, you know, monks or or, or brothers or something like that. There are lots of ways in which that can play itself out, but it always comes back to this sacrificial character that is not just a, not just a a spiritual sacrifice, but a kind of a flesh sacrifice as well. Mm -hmm. We're called to be uncomfortable in our pursuit of serving others. I think that's really where the whole notion of the man that protects his family comes in it's not just you know protect your family because the little lady can't handle things on her own (laughs) it's it's i am called to protect my family because i am called to sacrifice even with my body for the sake of the love of 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 them that that Mm -hmm. is part of what god calls me to just as god might call my wife to the sacrifice in her body of motherhood. That's right. That's very well said. You know, if we are trying to think about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, in both cases, the model is really Christ. We're to have the mind of Christ as men and the mind of Christ as as women. And those different identities and those different callings, uh, you know, we, we live out that differently. But both of us are called, as Jonathan said, to to a heroic uh, sacrifice. Uh, especially, I think, um, in in sort of evangelical circles right now, there is a, a huge, huge emphasis on ministry to men, and like a, a, an emphasis on gender roles. Basically, it, it's it seems like you go to a Christian bookstore, and there is any number of books about you know how to be a godly man um how to be a godly woman and and and, you know what are the differing roles of you know men and women in the church and and a lot of that stuff is you know it's helpful a lot of it is ennobling i think you know it's it's responding to you know a lack of heroism in, in in a lot of men um, and, and uh, you know, that, that we really are called to be heroic. But in many cases, it makes me uncomfortable because in calling men to a rediscovery of their masculinity, 
rather than calling them to the model of masculinity in Christ, it seems to be like sort of embracing these kind of older, they're sometimes called traditional ideas of masculinity, but they're really kind of pagan ideas of masculinity that, that have much more to do with this sort of the violent warrior who is strong and who dominates and, and who always, uh, always wins. I mean, some of the more egregious examples of this, I mean, Mark Driscoll gets picked on a lot. But, I mean, this one quote that sort of exploded the Internet years ago, where he, he's basically talking about, about the way Christ is, is uh, portrayed. And he says, you know, I can't worship, um, and I, I'm, I'm going to try to approximate the quote as much as I can, a limp-wristed, latte-drinking, diaper-wearing, sky fairy. Uh, you know, uh, who, who, who runs a daycare. You know, he's like, no, Christ was like a cage fighter, a cage fighter who, who was a warrior. And he has a tattoo on his leg and a commitment to make someone bleed. And he says, that's the God that I can worship. I, because I can never worship a guy whom I could beat in a fight. And, 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 and this this uh, this quote was uh, basically alternately celebrated and reviled, and, and I, I think it, 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 it was indicative of the kind of divide in, in the Christian culture about attitudes of masculinity. The idea of, of Jesus is meek and mild is out, but the like the strong like muscle bound kind of warrior christ is 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 very much in and uh i don't know what do you guys think about that it's pushing things a little far i mean i understand so i understand jesus is lord sabaoth right he is the lord of the hosts of the armies of heaven and there is an aspect of christ that we want to hold up in that that god is a powerful god and um but at the same time, I think that's just going way too far to want to turn him into a cage fighter and <laughs> and uh, diaper wearing. What in the hell is that about? Um, <laughs> well, and that line about uh, he he wants to make someone bleed. Yeah, that's absolutely true. He wants to make himself bleed. Yeah, that's right. That's mm. right. Father Matt, as you were well pointing out earlier, you know, Jesus flips the notions that we might have about manhood in some cases completely on its head in that his strength comes out in his sacrifice his courage and virtue come out in his acceptance of weakness and loss in the face of what was happening i mean i think that the image that driscoll has of jesus is the image that the zealots at the time wanted of Jesus. They wanted a, a, a Messiah who was going to kick butt and take names, who was going to come in and knock the Romans on their ears and set things right in that way. And that is not what Jesus does, and that's not ultimately what Jesus is about. I think that what is missing so often, not just from what Driscoll says, but what from from a lot of our, our pictures of 
manhood, whether we're talking about this this sort of outsized machismo version of manhood or the overly desensitized and unheroic versions of manhood that we sometimes see now, I think in all of those cases what's actually missing is a sense of, of manhood being connected to virtue. Um, let me draw a little line for you guys and see, see if, you, if, you, if you see what I'm seeing when you look at this. Superman. Okay, we start out with the machismo Superman, but let's let's knock it up a few years to World War II and post World War II Superman. Okay, Superman, and you could probably put post World War II Batman in a similar sort of category as kind of heroes who are strong, but who are also displaying certain virtues: courage, uh, restraint. Right? I mean, Batman doesn't kill people. He did before, but he did. Right. <laughs> he right. doesn't after after the sort of dust settles. Green Lantern. I mean, all these guys you can kind of fit into that sort of category. So you've got Superman and Batman and, and Green Lantern. Fast forward, and then you get maybe somebody like Spider Man who adds a different different element, as we've said. Fast forward a little more, and you get Wolverine. Uh-huh. Okay who is an almost animalistic version of the idea of both heroics and manhood, okay? Fast forward slightly more, and you get Deadpool, who (laughs) is almost morally devoid, as far as I can tell. What I see is a movement over time, at least in these sort of comic book ideas of heroes, from men of virtue to men of mayhem to men of mischief. And you can see this same thread in not just comic heroes, but in other sorts of heroes, too. I mean, there are a lot of kids in the 80s who grew up watching, you know, Rocky and Rambo and uh, uh, Knight Rider and, you know, I mean, the A-Team, any of these sort of guys where there is a, a kind of a resurgence of the hero as the guy who can knock the most people down. But there is still this element of the hero is also somebody who saves somebody else, right? I mean, John McClane, when he clears out the building, is not as concerned about certain things as 50s-era Superman might be. You know, he's cussing and (laughs) whatever, but... He is far more concerned about not having people die on his watch than Zack Snyder's Superman is when he's right. having the big battle in the city and there's people dying right and left, and who cares? Right. <laughs> you know? Right. And I'm not saying that there's no value to, like, the wise-cracking character. Like, I think that's sort of what Deadpool is. He's kind of the wise-cracking character, and that that can be kind of fun and interesting, too. But I don't see a lot of... What I don't see a lot of now is a lot of balance with men of virtue. And in fact, when you do see men of virtue, there is a tendency to scoff at that and to rip that down. You know, Superman has to be turned into this dark figure. Captain America has to be turned into this dark figure figure he had they haven't done that so much in the movies but if you read like uh the like brubaker's winter soldier you know right. Cap, captain becomes this very dark figure 
And uh, part of that darkness is a little bit of divergence from the idea of virtue, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's kind of what I was alluding to at the beginning when I was talking about the history of malehood in comic books. But I think you're right. I think you've named it better, that there is that loss of virtue. In some respects, I, I know in the 90s, and I'm thinking about some of the um, the comic books that, that Image Comics was, was publishing, Rob Leefield was, was, was uh, making a lot of these. There was sort of a a return to um, the machismo of the of the old Superman, where it was just like there there were these characters that just sort of sort of delighted in violence, like Supreme. Before Alan Moore took Supreme and made him a, a pretty interesting character, he was just basically a hyper violent Superman, and he was he was Superman on steroids like you know who was bigger more muscle bound and um you know uh it was it was absurdly violent <laughs> and he just destroyed stuff and there was this sort of hyper masculine kind of aggression that was in a lot of the comic books where it was just uh you know it, it wolverine was the popular and you know he would just be slashing his way through like crowds of ninjas and there would be you know blood everywhere it, you know it, it was just raw power and virtue didn't really come into it and in fact the idea of the um sort of uh, virtuous superhero was sort of uh set aside for the anti-hero yeah, so so although there's been sort of an arc in some respects, there's been there there there's been this sort of uh, large kind of backstabs <laughs> in the history of masculinity in comic books. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, didn't Leefield create Deadpool? I think it was Leefield and Baby and Achiza, or however you say his last name. But. Yeah, I mean, I remember thinking when Deadpool first emerged and thinking, oh, he, he looks kind of cool. And I think that was sort of the popularity of the character. He looks yeah. sort of like, you know, Spider-Man. Right. Um, Until he takes like off his mask. Like most elite-field characters, he was just very derivative. But right. uh, but it, there wasn't really much to his character. Uh, and and um, I think other other writers took him in different directions and, and uh but he's sort of like the absurd postmodern you know he's not really a hero he's a mercenary he's in it for himself it's you know everything's just a big joke um you know even death is a joke he can't die he um he kills people without thought of uh consequence um uh, it's just all a big kind of uh absurd joke well hopefully this episode of God and Comics is not a big absurd joke but we'd love to know what you think whether uh, joking or serious or otherwise please come and tell us through uh, something that I hear is becoming very popular these days amongst the young people. I don't know, Father Kyle and Father Matt, I don't know if you guys talk much to the young people, but when I sit down to rap with the youth, as I often do, with my hat turned back and uh, my, my chair turned around, uh, rapping with the youth, they tell me there is this thing called social media 
that has become extremely popular. And friends, God and Comics is on the social media, so please come and hit us up, facebook.com slash Comics, or you can tweet at us. We are on Twitter, at God and Comics. But for now, we are going to move into our last segment, which, by the way, also very popular with the young people, and that is This or That. This or that, this or that. Come on, everybody, let's this or that. All right, Father Kyle, the young people are waiting. What do you have for us? All right, let's get started. Father Jonathan, the first one goes to you. Rocket Raccoon or Roger Rabbit? I'm going to have to go with Roger Rabbit. He's, Why is that? Well, he's, he, I think he's, a, he's funnier, first of all. And he's, he's, he's got the, the hotter wife. I guess I don't know what like a true man (laughs) (laughs) all right father Matt Frosty the snowman or Olaf the snowman oh um Frosty the snowman definitely you know I've seen Frozen I watched it with my preschool aged uh, daughter uh, because because uh, you know every everything um, everything marketed to, to girls her age has the characters from Frozen on it, um, but neither of us was very impressed with it. We, we, uh, I, I didn't I didn't really uh, think the movie was all that interesting. Um, I mean, maybe you know, I, 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 and I'm sure we'll get letters about that. But uh, I mean. It, it, as far as fairy tales go, there have been better ones, and uh, and Frosty um, Frosty has the better song, so I'm gonna have to go with Frosty the Snowman. I'll tell you, I don't want some diapered, uh, weakling snowman. If I'm gonna have a snowman, <laughs> I want a cage fighter. I want a snowman <laughs> who is going to kill people. That's what I want. I want the abominable snowman. <laughs> the abominable <laughs> snowman. That's if, right. If your snowman doesn't have little elf in his teeth, um, <laughs> then I don't want to have anything to do with it. Next one goes to Father Jonathan. Lex Luthor or Brainiac? I think I'm going to go with Lex Luthor. I, I do think in some ways Brainiac is the harder villain to beat. He's just got a lot more sort of powers and things going on. But Luthor is just so paradigmatic. And I think, for me, I just instantly, when I think Lex Luthor, I think Gene Hackman. Yeah. And <laughs> it's hard to beat, you know, Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor in Superman 2, staring at the camera with his cigar and saying, Australia, you know. Uh, that's the deal he cuts with Zod that Zod can have the rest of the planet as long as he can have Australia (laughs) so Lex Luthor good answer good answer Father Matt Legion of Superheroes or League of Extraordinary Gentlemen the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen now you wouldn't know it from the awful movie that they made based on uh, on the comic book but that is just a wildly entertaining and, and incredibly smart series yeah so I'm going to have to go with uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen definitely 
I have not seen that movie, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and I don't no. intend to. No. I would much rather read the comic, which I haven't I, done either. Oh, you haven't? Oh, man. No. It's the, really good. The original series is It's really, really good. Really good. The, some of the later ones that Alan Moore has done, like in graphic novel forms, aren't quite... I, I didn't enjoy them quite as much, but the original series is so good. And even it, even the ads in the back, they have like yeah. these fake Victorian ads that are just priceless. Uh, and Alan Moore, he just—it's just spot on. I mean, um, so if you're a fan of Victorian literature, um, check out the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Father Jonathan, next one goes to you. John Lennon or Paul McCartney? Oh man, people always want to make this comparison, right? Which one of them is better? And I always feel like you can't. You can't really separate the two of them and have the Beatles. I feel like either one of them lost That's and true. the Beatles goes down. You can get rid of Ringo if you want. That won't have much effect. But uh, oh, you're a Ringo hater, huh? I'm not a Ringo hater. I like I like Ringo just fine. I'm just saying Paul and John, you know, even George. Like I mean, I think George is great, and some there's some great Beatles material that's generated by George. But it's really John and Paul are really the heart of the Beatles, and, and I don't think you could lose either one of them. That said, if I had to choose between one of them in terms of their solo work, I'd probably, you know, I, I have more John Lennon music in my, uh, in, on my iTunes than I do Paul McCartney. Even though McCartney, I think, is the superior musician out of the two of them, uh, but Lennon is just a little was always a little edgier and i always liked the kind of wild edginess of him so um, yeah. i guess if i had to choose i would do i would say lennon but really you know both of those guys for the win it's an extremely tough call you're right i'm paul mccartney has a little bit more of a pop sensibility and you are right mm-hmm. he's the better musician of the two but I probably join you in gravitating more towards Lennon because of his edginess. All right, uh, Father Matt, Hostess cupcakes or Tasty cakes? As a, an original native to the Philadelphia area, I have to say uh, Tasty cakes, and that would be the correct answer. Well, Father Jonathan, a '57 Chevy or a '67 Mustang? Clearly, a '57 Chevy. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it wins, and it is the right choice. Yeah, need I explain? I think that's pretty pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> yes, that's right. Father Matt, Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath? Led Zeppelin. Yeah, Led Zeppelin's just a smarter band. Father Jonathan, Golden Age DC or Silver Age DC? Hmm. A thinker. <laughs> yeah, when, so what, where does the Silver Age end? Silver Age, well, where does the Golden Age end, you mean? Well, no, where's the Silver I know Golden Age ends about the end of the 50s, right? Golden Age ends about 1964 for most, although for Superman it kind of ends in the late 50s. Okay, so um, where, where does where is the Silver the Age Silver end? Silver Age ends about 19, like 19, late 1970s. I would probably say Golden Age DC over over Silver Age DC. I I don't spend as much time on some of that uh, stuff from that era as you guys do. 
Although I have been reading um, some uh, really early Batgirl stuff in the 70s. Yeah. Um, which is interesting when she was like a member of Congress for a while and uh, <laughs> fighting street well, uh, thugs who were perpetrating election fraud, you know. <laughs> um, so, so where I see the, the Silver Age and the Golden Age divide, it's like so... With, with the kind of new incarnations of the characters. Yeah, so, that's mean, exactly the it. The characters mm-hmm. that we know are kind of a product of the Silver Age. I mean, the Green Lantern that, that we know um, and the Flash. Right. Um, and, um, yeah. Um, that's a good so, point. Maybe I should switch to the Silver Age then because, you know, of course, like when I think of Green Lantern, I think of Hal Jordan. I don't think of... Um, I can't even think of his name now. I can picture him in my mind. The one with the, the cape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alan Scott. Alan Scott. Alan Scott. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, although the big, I guess the 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 what I was sort of thinking about was like the the big three: um, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and yeah. the, they all are the same character characters all the way through. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. There's a there's the divide for them but um when you break things out the way that dc eventually did when it developed to earth one earth two right distinction early on they kind of took batman at least i'll speak for um when he got the yellow oval around the bat on his chest which was 1964 that became the divide so he was the silver age batman and uh i think otherwise what matt's saying is pretty pretty spot on about the uh typically when the new flash came aboard and mm-hmm. Hal Jordan became green lantern last one father matt scarlet spider or spider-man 2099 <laughs> oh the, is do you have to ask i mean spider-man 2099 is so much cooler than the scarlet spider which ruined spider-man basically um you know that's when I, I kind of dropped off as Spider-Man. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I mean, the Scarlet Spider looks dumb. He has that, like, stupid hoodie with his <laughs> sleeves ripped off. And, uh, no. No, but Spider-Man 2099 was was uh, was awesome. I remember being way into that when it came out, the, the Peter David series. Yeah. Um, and he just he just looks really cool. Friends, that is going to do it for God and Comics this week. Uh, If you want to check out some of the rad stuff that we talked about today, check out our show page, will you, at GodandComics.com. We always post links there to some of the things that we talk about. God and Comics is subscribable through iTunes. And while you're up on iTunes, if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating or a review, we would really appreciate it. It it helps other people to find the show. Our theme music is by Father Paul Wheatley, and hopefully you are banging your head to it right now in a manly fashion, because, friends, there is no one more manly than Father Paul Wheatley. Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. I'm Father Matt Strumberg. And we'll see ya.